My name is Justin Hughes. Uh, I've been a member here for about a year. And tonight we're going to continue in our series, uh, Questions That God Asks. Um, I've really enjoyed many of the messages so far. We've looked at the questions, where were you? Where are you? What have you done? Who made man's mouth? What are you doing here? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And do you have the right to be angry? Why does God ask us questions? It's, it's certainly not because he needs information. It's because God wants a response from us. Questions get at the heart. And questions cause us to respond. And so tonight we're going to look at a question that God asked the prophet Isaiah. The question of whom shall I send and who will go for us? So please turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 6. If you don't have one, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. And the passage for tonight is found on page 571. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed." So the main idea for tonight is that Christians will boldly go wherever God asks them to as a result of experiencing and enjoying the gospel of grace. Christians will boldly go wherever God asks them to as a result of experiencing and enjoying the gospel of grace. And so we're going to trace that story of salvation tonight through Isaiah's experience. And we'll look at it in four points. Number one, we stand unclean before a holy God. Number two, salvation comes through the atonement of sins. Number three, the gospel is our motivation for missions. And then number four, success in evangelism is measured by faithfulness, not fruitfulness. So number one, we stand unclean before a holy God. 
Verses 1 and 2. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Isaiah saw the Lord in a similar way that Moses saw the Lord in Exodus chapter 33. Moses had asked if he could see God's glory. And God responded, Exodus 33, verse 20, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so the Lord had to hide Moses in a rock and show him only the backside of his glory so that Moses wouldn't be killed. And even the seraphim here must cover their faces and their feet before the Lord who is high and lifted up. The seraphim proclaim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We just sang that song, Holy, holy, holy. And the reason we say it three times is to emphasize how holy God is. This God is holier than all. He is distinct. He is absolutely pure. There is no darkness, no impurity, no hint of evil in him, no deceit. Verse 4. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And when we understand the context of what's happening, the house being filled with smoke, we realize that this was the first act of God's mercy towards Isaiah. It was actually meant to protect him from death. Uh, We should be reminded here of how the priests in Leviticus were instructed to burn incense um, and to create smoke as a barrier between them and God. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come in at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And then later in that chapter, And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. So Isaiah now realizes he is in the very presence of this God who is infinitely holy, whom the seraphim are not even worthy to look upon. And so how does he respond in this moment? Well, verse 5, And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In standing before the Lord of hosts, high and lifted up, the one who is holy beyond measure, Isaiah is undone. He realizes how utterly unclean he is before this God. Moral relativism holds no value before this God. God is absolutely holy. He is absolutely clean. And before him, Isaiah is undone. Seeing God's purity has made him aware of his impurity. Seeing God's holiness has made him aware of his unholiness. And so he cries out in desperation, knowing that before this God, he has nothing in himself to bring to make himself worthy to even stand before him. Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? 
Moses responded in a similar way to seeing God's glory in Exodus 34. It said, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Standing before God does not make us realize how much better we are than other people. It makes us realize how holy and righteous and absolutely pure God is, and how unclean we are in comparison to him. It brings a sense of shock at how unlike God we are. Isaiah identifies with the unclean people of Israel rather than with this God. So in order for us to have fellowship with God, we need him to do something on our behalf. Which brings us to our second point. Isaiah experienced salvation and mercy through the atonement of his sins. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Notice first what the seraphim didn't do. He didn't minimize Isaiah's response. He didn't tell Isaiah that he was taking this all too seriously. He didn't tell Isaiah not to be afraid. The seraphim had to take a burning coal from the altar, uh, which makes us think of a burnt offering or a burnt sacrifice, and he touched Isaiah's lips with this burning coal. And this was the very area that Isaiah was most aware of his uncleanness. That's exactly where the seraphim touched him with this coal, declaring that his guilt was taken away and that his sin was atoned for. So are there areas of your life that you feel are too unclean for God to make clean? Where are you aware of your need for for your guilt to be taken away and your sin to be atoned for? God can make all things clean. God can take away your guilt. God can atone for your sin. But how is this guilt taken away? How, how is it atoned? Does it mean that God just swept it under the rug? And if so, God would be unjust, or he, he wouldn't be absolutely holy. Because for him to tolerate any impurity would make him less than absolutely pure. So what does this atonement really mean? Well, a foreshadowing of what this would look like comes later in Isaiah, in chapter 53, verses 4 and 6. It says, Surely he, being Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, both Moses and Isaiah experienced the atonement of their sins and the removal of their guilt because God put forward Jesus to atone for their sins in their place. He put Jesus forward as a propitiation, a wrath-satisfying sacrifice, and they looked to that sacrifice as their hope for salvation. Romans three twenty three and 26 puts it this way. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward by a, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So this is the gospel. We stand undone and unclean before a holy God. In light of his purity, we see our impurity. Isaiah finally realized how deep and dark and dirty his sin was. Even his very lips felt unclean before a holy God. He realized that almost everything he had ever spoken was tainted by sin. Everything he had ever done was before the face of the one who is morally perfect. And we realize we have nothing good enough or clean enough in ourselves to present to this holy, high, lifted up, majestic God on the throne to make us acceptable before him. So to stand in his presence and to stand before him would absolutely undo us unless God provides a way for us to be made clean. And that's exactly what he's done. He has provided his son, and through his perfect life, his obedience even unto death on a cross, and the power of his resurrection, God now offers us the righteousness that he requires to be in his presence. Christ has taken away our guilt. Jesus has atoned for our sins on the cross. We are no longer unclean, before this holy God, but absolutely clean and righteous because of the work of Christ. So friends, if you're here tonight and you're not trusting in Christ as your righteousness to stand before a holy God, I implore you, be reconciled to God. He has made a way for us. Do not wait. Do not delay until you stand before this God and are absolutely undone in his holy presence. In Christ, we can with confidence boldly approach the throne of grace, the throne of a loving Father. Apart from Christ, there only awaits the expectation of judgment. Be reconciled to God. It's the greatest joy you can have. Number three, the gospel is our motivation for missions. Verse eight, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. You'll notice Isaiah's going, or his willingness to go, is not an attempt to earn God's mercy or earn God's favor, but rather in response to what he has already just received. Why does God ask Isaiah instead of telling him to go? And why is this important for us? Again, God's asking a question because he wants a response. God knows how to get to the heart. So missions and evangelism are the proper response to a right understanding of the gospel. As we think upon and enjoy the blessings of what God has done for us in Christ, we can't help but share the good news of the gospel for others. As we dwell upon what we deserve in comparison to what God has graciously given us, this motivates us to go and tell people the good news. They don't deserve the gospel, but neither did we. In Romans 10, Paul quotes Isaiah after declaring that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Romans 10, 14 through 17, Paul lays out his line of reasoning for preaching and for evangelism. He says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Friends, brothers and sisters, people will not come to believe in Jesus unless they hear of him. And they're not going to hear of him in the, in the truest sense if someone doesn't share the gospel with them. So our non-believing neighbors and family members, coworkers, and friends may know things about Jesus, but have they heard the gospel? And may we be those of beautiful feet who preach the good news to them. And remember, we're preaching good news. So perhaps God is asking us tonight, is asking you tonight, whom shall I send and who will go for us to your family, to your coworkers, to your friends, to your neighborhood, and to the ends of the earth? And I'll admit, I am no model of this. I need this message as much, if not more, than any of you. I am not a model of evangelism. I have friends and neighbors, coworkers, family members that I need to share this gospel with. But by God's grace, I'm striving to live in a way that honors him and brings good news to a world that is dying to hear it. I know I need his help in this. We all need his help in this. So what keeps us from joyfully responding, here I am, send me? What opportunities has God given you, even in the next few weeks, to respond in that way? And if you feel unmotivated to share the gospel with others, the solution is not to just try harder. The solution is to press into your salvation and to think and meditate upon it and to praise God for the gift of the gospel and then ask him to give you a heart that's willing and eager to share it with others. In the same way that God loves a cheerful giver, God loves a joyful witness. We heard this morning that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. However, this doesn't mean that once we become laborers in God's harvest, that it will always be easy or will yield instant results. Which brings us to our fourth point. Success in evangelism is measured by faithfulness, not fruitfulness. Verses 9 and 10. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So God knowingly sends Isaiah to give his message to a people who will not hear what he has to say and who will only further harden their hearts towards him. So by worldly standards, Isaiah's ministry is a total failure. But God doesn't measure success the same way the world does. Isaiah faithfully proclaimed the message that God gave him to proclaim. He didn't try to change the message to get different results. He fulfilled his mission, and he left the results up to God. God has promised that his word will not go out void, and he will accomplish what he purposes for it. This is good news for us because it means we're not responsible for the results. We can't change people's hearts. 
Only the Spirit of God can do that. But as we saw in Romans 10, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So let's be those who partner with the Spirit to bring the word of Christ. Let us faithfully proclaim this good news of mercy and grace freely extended to all who would believe on Jesus as their only hope of righteousness before a holy God. And let us not become discouraged when we aren't seeing the results we hoped for. God is sovereign. He will be glorified, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.